The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing, and we begin today with mounting pressure on the Prime Minister. They're forcing him to be more open, or they'd like to force him to be more open about his coronavirus strategy. A panel of MPs is calling on the government to publish the scientific advice which lies behind Britain's response to the pandemic. And all this comes amid criticism that Number 10's relaxation of the lockdown has led to a lot of confusion on what people should and shouldn't be doing. Meanwhile, the Institute for Public Policy Research has found that the government can ramp up spending to fight the pandemic without risking unsustainable levels of debt. Speaking to Bloomberg, IPPR's executive director, Karis Roberts, said a boost uh, for the case for the government to invest in economic growth rather than return to austerity. Scenarios that suggest that the economy is going to bounce back are actually too optimistic. Um, so we think that a three-month lockdown could result in 120% of public debt to GDP. Um, but what mm. we also know at the moment is that the cost of borrowing to government is extremely low. So even if we doubled the UK's debt, we would still be paying less to service that as a share of tax than almost any time since 1950. Yeah. Uh, so what we know is that there isn't any urgent need reduce reduce the deficit and in fact any talk of austerity is likely to be extremely counterproductive in terms of allowing the economy to recover and that was the IPPR's executive director Karis Roberts talking about well what sounds to many like um, the magic money tree remember all that well joining us now is Abina Apong Asare who's Labour MP for Erith and Thamesmead Abina thank you very much for being with us welcome to you um it does sound a bit like the Conservatives are happy to borrow uh, rather than bring back austerity. Is that sounds almost like a Labour policy. Um, well, I mean, to be honest, the devil's in the detail in terms of what's going to happen with that. Um, I mean, I've got some, some concerns about um, the lack of support that's been given to local authorities, um, which, um, you know, I know a number of local authority leaders and also a number of MPs, including myself, have been calling on more support for local councils whose funding has been massively depleted and they've been um, doing a lot of work on the ground support, to support people that have been affected by COVID. Um, so I think um, it's very much in what, what where the money's going to go to in terms of addressing this issue. Um, a lot of work needs to be done. I feel that a lot of information that's been given from the government, there's been a lack of clarity um, in terms of how things are going to be looked at, um, just simple things in terms of whether to, with the Prime Minister's announcement recently where he made a statement 
where he's moved the stay at home to stay alert. That that that's been really confusing. I've been contacted by so mm. many constituents who have essentially um, within those few hours were asking me, well, "What does this even mean? Does that mean I have to go back to work? If I go back to work, what am I going to do about childcare? Yeah, I don't know how I'm going to um, what my rights are." And um, I think messages like that need to be clear. I think one of the things that I also had concerns about was the fact that um, when this announcement was made, um, the government published um, safety guidance for employees, which was progress. But that was yeah. published on the Monday. So how how would that have been able to be implemented within two days? Well, what about testing? Because that's something that we've seen the government come into a lot of criticism for. But now we're at the stage where it's been extended to anyone over the age of five who's showing symptoms. Mm -hmm. We've also heard from Matt Hancock saying the UK is ready to start finding the national tracing programme. I mean, it's taken a lot of time to get here, but it sounds like the parts are falling into place. Well, I mean, I think it's good that, you know, with the testing, as you mentioned, I mean, there has been issues where the testing and tracing has been delayed. Um, but what I do find really baffling is the government announced at the weekend that 18,000 um, contact tracers um, have been made. But I've been um, contacted by a constituent of mine who've applied, but they've yet to hear um, whether they're going to be a contact tracer. So, so there are still some issues that really do need to be looked into um, it was supposed to be done in the middle of the month and it hasn't been done. And I appreciate, I know that it's a really difficult situation that the government is in. Um, you know, we've never dealt with a crisis of this scale and it's a crisis that's being dealt with internationally. It's not just us in the UK that is, is trying to deal with this. Um, but I just feel that there could be a lot more clarity and a lot more clearer information and coordination sure. in terms of what's going on. So what I'm hearing from you, Arbina, is, is that you, you, you broadly you support the way the government is tackling this. It's more the detail of the how and the how efficiently they're doing it. But you would say that Labour would be following something similar if it were in the same position. I think that um, with regards to the testing, I think that um, if Labour was in power, we probably would have done the testing a lot earlier. Um, I think also, I think it's, you know, one of the things that I've, I've got concerns about is the fact that, um, you know, just recently um, we've now been told that loss of smell and taste is now being added as um, something that needs to be um, people to recognise as a symptom. So they need to self-isolate for seven days. But that's something that the World Health Association, um, World Health, Health Organisation has um, essentially been calling for since the 15th of March, and I just didn't understand why we weren't following that. Um, what, what about schools? We've got uh, many due to open on the 1st of June. The FT reporting that yeah. hundreds are going to stay closed nonetheless. Shouldn't they be reopening? We had Tony Blair making the point that private schools are going to have been educating their children all throughout this, so the likelihood is there are many, many in the state sector who are going to fall behind. We're going to see that gap get even wider. Yeah, I think with, with the schools, um, it's not an easy um, situation. One of the things I think we all kind of agree with is that education is really important and making sure that um, every kid you know, gets the best education. But one of the things that I think is particularly important is um, making sure that when kids are going to, to school, 
that um, they're essentially being going to going to school in a safe way. So I've been contacted by loads of constituents of mine. Some of those constituents are teachers. Some of them are um, parents. And uh, I just feel that the government should really be listening to the teachers. So I'll tell you an example of a conversation that I had last night with one of the teachers who said to me that one of the concerns that she and her colleagues have is there is um, there's no clear guidelines to say teachers need to wear PPE. One of the things she's also concerned about is um, teaching kids in early years. They're worried they're not going to be able to teach um, those children effectively because they have to move um, soft furnishings. And normally these children learn through play in school. Another thing she's also concerned about is she herself is asthmatic. So she's one of those individuals that is at risk in terms of, you know, getting getting the virus. Um, and so I think there needs to be a clear conversation because, you know, I'm all for, like, kids going back to school. But in my area, I know that there are vulnerable children that um, right now they're at home. We don't know if they're getting um, the level of support that some of the kids are, so there's going to be a disparity. So some of the children don't have main, um, don't have laptops. They don't have uh, access to... Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, in all this, I mean, it, 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 what you're saying is, you know, you're hearing one thing from teachers, and obviously on the other side, parents desperately, desperately want um, their kids to be back at school. So in the end, it comes out to a sort of balance, doesn't it? I mean, you can't be completely, absolutely 100% safe necessarily teaching, but we do know 100% that if kids aren't in school, they will fall behind. But the schools, I feel, should open if we're um, if, the, if the government can guarantee that it's going to be safe for the children to do so, and there has not been clear guarantees that that's going to, going to happen. Um, and I agree with you. I mean, one of my biggest concerns is the attainment gap right now, um, where kids are basically, there are some kids that are going to be falling behind the cracks because they don't have that level of support, particularly now that schools are, are closed. But we need to make sure that the schools are properly supported, given clear measures in terms of making sure that these social distancing measures can actually be implemented. I mean, have you, you know, have you tried, like, trying to tell a young kids that they need to stay within a certain area? It's not that easy. Um, so they do need support in, in doing that. And it's not something that's going to happen overnight. But to say that schools are just going to open on the first of June without proper consultation, that's concerning to me. Does that make sense? I, I- yeah, and briefly on on this Airbridge uh, agreement that we've heard talk about, this idea that countries with low infection rates will be able to open their borders via air to Britain. What do you make of that in a way to get travel going once again for airlines, but also for passengers? Um, so I think that um, the government, what the government's done now is they've announced that anyone that goes travelling um, essentially has to be put in, um, they need to self-isolate for two weeks. Um, which I think um, a good thing. Um, I wish it had been done earlier. But um, I think that we just need to make sure that we get enough like scientific evidence, making sure that the airports particularly, they are um, practising the proper social distancing for it to go forward. So I am kind of open to that idea as long as it's safe.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And let's start with Brexit, shall we? The Department for International Trade has announced plans for sweeping tariff cuts. That's as Britain decides how it will replace EU import taxes with ones of its own. Under the plan, no duties are going to be paid on items like dishwashers, freezers and Christmas trees from the start of next year. A little bit late for Christmas trees. 60% of trade will come in tariff free. That compares to 47 currently. But... Import taxes stay at 10% for cars, that's a biggie, and duties stay in place for agricultural products like beef, lamb, poultry, all about protecting that industry. Meanwhile, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, announced anyone over five in the UK with symptoms can now be tested for coronavirus. The loss of taste or smell has also been added to the list of COVID-19 symptoms alongside a fever and a new persistent cough. Testing in England and Scotland so far has been limited to key workers and their families and hospital patients, care home residents, the over 65s and those who need to leave home to work. But even then, only if they show symptoms. It all comes as the Science and Technology Committee says the government's ability to test people for the virus has been, quote, inadequate throughout the pandemic. And plans to move MPs and peers out of Parliament for the restoration should be reviewed. That's according to the independent body in charge of managing the plans. Politicians were scheduled to leave the Palace of Westminster for up to five years while the work was completed. The move was expected to take place around 2025 and the work was expected to cost £3.5 billion. But now the sponsor body says it should be really evaluated in light of the new pressures on public finances due to the pandemic. That said, it maintains that essential repairs need to be done to the building as it is at risk from fire. A very crumbly building, but I suspect here they're reading the room and seeing there are perhaps other more immediate priorities. Yes, I think perhaps a sense that there is something else going on that requires their full attention. And despite the fact that we are still deep in the middle of this crisis, people are now beginning to look beyond it, wonder what sort of country Britain will be the other side, what sort of country it could be. Well, one of those is the entrepreneur and economist John Mills. He's a long-term Labour supporter, of course, and financial backer. He's now launched a new think tank and cross-party policy organisation, the John Mills Institute for Prosperity. And it's also come up with a report calling for an industrial and manufacturing resurgence to revive the economy or else risk creating a lost generation. I'm very pleased to say we've been joined by JLL founder and Labour donor John Mills himself. Uh, John, welcome to the programme. Uh, you're calling for an industrial manufacturing resurgence. It does sound, forgive me, a bit old fashioned. Well, I don't think it is old fashioned. I think the reality is we do across the world that most increases in living standards and productivity come from manufacturing, not from services. And the fact that our manufacturing capacity has gone down from nearly a third of GDP as late as 1970 to less than 10% now is very much 
the reason why living standards have gone up so slowly recently. And this is very important in, in relation to the recovery from coronavirus, because if we're going to recover only at the rate of uh, growth of 1% or something, then I think there's a real danger that by 2030, living standards and the economy will be no bigger than they are or they were in 2019 or even 27. 2007. I mean, I think we're facing a real lost decade for not very careful if we don't take advantage of the increase in productivity you can get from manufacturing but not from services. But John, haven't we done all this? We've been through the Industrial Revolution. We've seen living standards rise. And now it's the case that if you want to get something made, it's a lot cheaper to do it somewhere like China or the Far East than it is in Britain. And, and now we should be looking ahead to new emerging industries like tech, where there's still an opportunity to take on the US and gain a foothold. Yeah, but I mean, there's a good reason why it's much cheaper to make things in China than it is in the UK. And that's because we have an exchange rate policy in the UK, which suits services which aren't very price sensitive and where we've got lots of natural advantages. But the lethal for manufacturing where we don't have these natural advantages. And therefore, what we find is that the proportion of our national income, which comes from manufacturing, has just gone down and down and down. And with it, our capacity for growth. This is the huge dilemma that I think the British economy faces. And unless we do something about this, I think we're in for another decade of growth at maybe 1% or something per annum. At the same time as we've got lots of costs coming down the track of climate change, on education and training, on health costs, and uh, and uh, other factors, all of which are going to pile in on top of us. But, and but I John... think the result of all this... I was going to say, John, yeah. what you're talking about, the, the difference in China and the UK, surely, though, is just one of scale. The fact is they have an enormous population, not particularly high skilled in many areas, who, are, who, who can be used for manufacturing. What we have in the UK is a much smaller working population and where the level of skill is, is higher and could be improved. Isn't it really a question of just getting a much better skilled workforce? Well, I don't think it is. I mean, the, the, if you look at the history, it's actually very difficult to get productivity up in the service sector. Nearly all the improvements in living standards that have taken place since the Industrial Revolution started came from manufacturing, mostly from technology, uh, from, uh, uh, from power, better use of power, and, uh, and uh, you know, different skills that are related to manufacturing. The difficulty is if you rely on services to get these standards of living up, it just doesn't happen. That's the problem. Uh, and what about plans for economic growth? I mean, you want to say you, you say you want to get the economy at over three percent to rebuild from this crisis. That is a big goal. But there's no. But the world averages three percent. This is just getting us up to something near the world average. And the trouble is, we've just got used to a new norm of lower and lower rates of economic growth, and we've just got to a sort of state of mind where we just accept that as being a fact of life. But it isn't a fact of life. It's the result of policies which we've chosen to adopt, which have undermined the capacity of the country to run manufacturing successfully. And that's what's led to the very low growth rate we've got. And this is the danger that we're facing, I think, for the next decade, that we're not going to reverse any of these policies. And we're going to finish up by just impoverishing the whole population at a time when we've got the heavy costs of of coronavirus to overcome anyway.
Let me ask you about the support for what you're proposing, though, John, because it is interesting. Um, we have you know, a new Labour leader, uh, Keir Starmer, but she, a former Labour minister is, in fact, I think, backing your report. Uh, do you sense that the party that you support is willing to go with what you're proposing? Well, I think it remains to be seen. But I think the country and the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, everybody else, just faces the same dilemma, which is if you're not prepared to make any changes to... Uh, monetary and economic policy, particularly regarding the exchange rate, you lock the country into a low rate of economic growth, 1% if we're lucky, for the next decade. Now, I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think the country's going to think that's acceptable. But if we're not going to uh, allow this to happen, we've got to make these really radical changes to our monetary and exchange rate policy. That's what the report that uh, has been published uh, the last day or so has been saying. Do you feel like there's any appetite within within Labour or within the front bench in in Labour to make this happen? Uh, I'm not sure. I think the, the reaction to the report that uh, on Twitter and so on has actually been surprisingly positive. Now, I agree with you that what I'm suggesting is a radical change of policy. It's not one that just the mainstream view of most people at all. What I am saying is that we've got to face up to the fact that there's some very awkward choices that have got to be made. And if we're not prepared to look at the uh, factors they are and to consider their implications, you lock the country into another decade of no increase in living standards with all the political and social and economic consequences that are in trains. Sure. And I don't think that's acceptable. John, I mean, the first time I think we're speaking to you really since uh, Sir Keir Starmer has got bedded down as the new Labour leader. What do you think of the party that you've been helping for a very long time? What do you think of the party under Keir Starmer now? How different is it? Well, I think it is considerably different. I very much welcome the changes that have been made. I think uh, Sir Keir Starmer will be a very effective leader. I think he's already shown his paces in doing that. And I think the whole of the Labour Party at the moment is very much looking for ideas about what to do to get uh, our economic performance better. And I hope that the contribution I made with this report will help in that direction. I mean, we're looking ahead a little bit here, but 2024, do you think Labour can win back power or are we looking at another cycle before that can happen? I think it's hard to tell. Um, I don't think the government has performed that well over the whole coronavirus crisis. I think that uh, they may well find that their support unravels. I think we'll have to see. But I think the Labour Party is more likely to gain power if it can go to the electorate with a really credible policy for getting the economy to perform better. And I hope that the report that I produce will make some sort of contribution in that direction. Probably more welcome with the Keir Starmer uh, group than it would have been, do you think, under Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, yes, I mean, I think the report that I'm suggesting is a more sort of market-orientated uh, report, one that fits in better with the sort of um, way the British economy has been run in some respects for a long period of time. And although it uh, involves some radical changes on the exchange rate and monetary front, it doesn't involve huge changes in other directions. So I think in terms of feasibility, it could all be done. And really what I'm suggesting for the UK is nothing different from most of the successful countries in the world already pursue. If you look at countries like Germany, Switzerland, Singapore, South Korea, China, all they're doing really is pursuing the same policies that my report recommends the UK should adopt. So I'm not suggesting something that's completely outlandish, just suggesting that what we do is to copy the countries that are doing really well at the moment. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.